Okay, so you fixed the chair. Yep. New listeners might not realise that Joe has had a chair that has creaked like a galleon for about three years. Actually hasn't, but there we go. Well, no, you see, that is a classic example of what I have to deal with because I want to play you a clip now <laughs> for, that I cut out of last week's show. Bearing in mind, so, human ears probably won't be able to hear this. Let me just play it. Okay. So I thought we could ask each other, you know, what, what does Easter actually mean to you? Not what should it mean. Yes. But yes. what does it actually mean? Let's just get honest about it. <laughs> what was that noise just now? But it wasn't my chair. You hear things that no one else hears. Oh, there was a great clang. No, there wasn't. Well, I didn't hear it. Oh, okay. I think these noises are in your head. Now, is there anything you'd like to say at this point? <laughs> Every now and then, there might actually be a noise in the background. What was that? I don't know. I think it was the sound of your brain cell rattling inside your head. <laughs> anyway, let's get on with it. Go on, then. Welcome everybody to episode, what number is it? 154. Brilliant, well done. Right there on your running order. <laughs> 154, the Midfaith Crisis podcast. My name is Nick Page. I am joined by the man who hears everything, Joe Davis. Hello everyone. <laughs> Great to be back with you. <laughs> and uh, how are you? I'm alright, thanks. Yeah. All is well, all is well. We have got a very special episode today because obviously it's a 154th episode and you have to mark that. Got to mark that. Thing. Um, I can't believe it. Now your printer has just started. <laughs> <laughs> what, is, what is wrong with you? I don't, what do I have to I, work with this? I genuinely don't know. <laughs> <laughs> That's just Aww. random. Anyway, Aww. carry on. No, I, I, what else is going to happen? A seagull's going to fly in, or I don't know. I don't anyway. Know. Anyway, look, we're on our best behaviour today because it's only the Big Mac. It is. So we have an interview today. First of a two-part interview with none other than Brian McLaren. Yes. Uh, um, and I'm glad to say that you were very, very appreciative, but you didn't turn down the fanboy quite a lot. I, d- I did turn it down. I well, tried only because to... I knew when, the minute I knew you were interviewing him, I thought, oh. Gosh, this is going to be full on. No, here's the truth about the fanboy thing. I am obviously a fanboy, Brian McLaren, but it goes much deeper than just being a simple fanboy. It is like his books, genuinely, along with yours, of course, and I feel I need to say that. um, (laughs) (laughs) They brought life at a really dark time in life. You know, when I was at my worst in my mid-faith crisis, I think reading his books just gave me such hope and such light. So I feel like I've followed him for the last kind of 20 years. And um, and this last book, I think, is is probably one of the cream of the crop, hmm. uh, really. It's it's really good. It's a bit like you. I think the writing just gets better and better. So there you go. Well, it's very kind of you to say to class me with that. I don't think it's the case at all. But, I, you know, it is a very good... I think a brilliant interview, mate. Oh, and, thank you. And uh, I'm, I'm really looking forward to hearing what the... 
listeners have to say about it. So we've got mm. two uh, Brian McLaren interviews in the next two weeks, or, or one interview mm. split into two. And, mm. uh, yeah, we'll be we'll be focusing on that. But in the meantime, how are you? What's been well, going on in your life? Do you know, I'm very happy to be going up to the woods regularly and hearing all the birds and summer visitors coming back, hearing the black caps going this week. So that was good. I may have to record some of those for you. Easter was great because I actually saw my children first time in six months. Mm. Uh, so that was particularly wonderful. Um, obviously not so good for them, but great for me. Uh, and, uh, yeah. and it was fantastic um so, well yeah it's just uh, what can i say family time is so precious and mm. easter was good and um and thank you to everyone who wrote in with how to get rid of cats do you want to know what the top answer was how Go to on. get is it's to spread lion dung around your garden and this wasn't said really? in any sense of ironic way this was a serious answer and i know it's serious because it came from several people so would, yeah would that not run the risk of attracting lions well that's what i wonder w- will you anger other lions in the area yeah. so you might get rid of the cat but... <laughs> yeah, i can see it going wrong in a, in a dramatic <laughs> wake up one morning there's a flipping great tiger <laughs> oh, that's I don't know. on the on the not so good side um you know i had this second jab a couple of weeks ago and I thought oh, I totally got away with it but by golly this week I am so tired it's really? just oh my lord yes no it's hard it's tough so yeah, um, my mum's my mum's had a second jab and she's been very fatigued as well she wasn't by the first one so um, who knows yes well there you go now listen how are you because last week you were feeling a little bit you know bluesy weren't you yeah I'm still a little bit struggling I think but it's okay I mean I'm not helped by the weather because the weather at Easter was fantastic yeah and then it was bonkers <laughs> and the British weather is just—it's mad. It is. It is. Four seasons in half a day. Never mind one day. And um, yeah, so it, it, that was about lovely warm weather on Easter Sunday. Really yes, beautiful where we yeah. were. So I did enjoy that. Mm. Yeah, I'm all right. I've I've got uh I've got an article out in the new issue of Christianity. Ah, have you? What's that on? It's called "I Don't Like Your Platitude." And uh, it's all about the stupid platitudes that Christians say. Oh, great. <laughs> so I will I put a link up in the... Because it's on their website, so you can oh, go and have a look. And um, I'll put a link up in the show notes. And maybe we'll maybe we'll come back to that and talk about that in another episode. I'd love to. <laughs> and indeed, I'd love to use them on you regularly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, they are, they are horrendous. Anyway... Um, Anyway, yep. uh, we should move on because we also had another big announcement. Oh, oh, get ready. Presumably you're going to edit in a drum roll here. I don't know, but, you know, it, it warrants it. Well, bongos. Should we put bongos in? Let's put, let's put some bongos in. Ladies and gentlemen, we want to announce an event. We do. A lot of people have said to us very, very kindly and, and I think deeply misguidedly <laughs> that they view mid-faith crisis as a kind of church. Um, so we thought, well, what do you do if you're a church? Well, you obviously you have a church weekend away. Of course you do. <laughs> so we want to announce the mid-faith crisis church weekend away. Uh, what we're going to do is going to do a weekend. Yeah. Um, not for many people. We can only take a maximum of about 30-odd people, yes. I think. Yes, yep. 
or, or whatever. So full details, or at least as full details as we know at this stage, are going to be on the website. And uh, the event is going to be held on the 29th to the 31st of October this year. Yeah. COVID permitting. Yeah. At uh, St. Catherine's Parmore, which is near Henley. And Maidenhead. Henley on Thames. How lovely. Indeed, not far from the Thames. Yeah. So um, if you are interested, go to the website and uh, send an email to... Joe at midfaithcrisis.org and tell us your requirements. Yeah, and uh, we need to know some details, obviously. But uh, again, you can you can find it all on the website. So yeah. there it is. The Mid Faith Crisis Church Away Weekend mm. will happen this October, 29th to 31st of October, um, and we, we very much hope to see you there. And uh, should we point out to the beloved listener that we're paying to go on it as well? So you know your <laughs> your money does not cover our costs. In no, any way, mean. because we wanted to keep the cost down as much as possible. It turns out it's quite expensive to go somewhere and stay somewhere and have three meals a day somewhere. Uh, so we've managed to keep it all under £200 for the weekend. But we're paying to go as well. So uh, we're hoping that one or two of you might be able to make a donation uh, to the podcast. And uh, I'm invoicing Rachel to come as well. <laughs> Yes, there is every danger that our, our better halves will be with us as well. So, uh, yeah, do come. And uh, anyway, we've said enough. We can find out stuff. On yes, the indeed. And uh, hope to see you there. So let's do. get on to the main event here, right here and now. Let's. Which is an interview with Brian McLaren. How fabulous. Do you want to set this up for us? I, I just, uh, Brian McLaren, he's, uh, he's a well-established author. He's a great friend to people who struggle with faith. And um, his latest book, Faith After Doubt, uh, is, is, is really worth a read, friends. And, um, and that's what he's going to be talking about now. Well, dear friends, I am so thrilled and excited to welcome to the Mid-Faith Crisis podcast, none other than Mr. Brian McLaren. Hello, Brian. Hey, I, and I've got to say, I, you have the best name of a podcast. I love it. So it's a great pleasure <laughs> to be with you. you and a great pleasure to be on such an auspiciously entitled <laughs> podcast. Well, thank you. It is, it is terrific to have you here. Now, listen, before we before we really get going, I'm just going to say a, a massive thanks to you um, because your books and, and, and the journey you've been on has mirrored so much of, of my journey. And, you know, going back to a new kind of Christian, I know it wasn't your first book, but that was the one that really unlocked something for Rachel and I, my wife. And, uh, and then um, the story we find ourselves in. And, uh, you know, when you, when you in that book started to go through the different theories of the atonement, like there wasn't just one. Yes. Like there was actually another way of thinking about what might have been going on. It blew my little mind and and it just started off this journey. And um, anyway, we could talk about your other books, but we're here specifically to talk about Faith After Doubt, because this this podcast with the title that you love, thank you, <laughs> came about because more and more Nick, my co-host and brilliant author, need to say that, uh, <laughs> we were talking more and more around stages of faith. People were lapping yes. this up. They'd never heard of it, um, yes. you know, four or five years ago. I think it's a bit more yeah. mainstream now. And, uh, and it was resonating so deeply with them. And, and, you know, there's a few authors been writing about not much, but then this prince of a book comes out, right? Oh. <laughs> and it just... Man, it's like balm for the soul. Uh, 
as you start to see in it, yes, this is the journey we've all been going on. And then you give us some hope about how that journey continues and, and start to actually reconstruct at long last, you know, what things <laughs> could be looking at. And thank you for that. So I've got a suggestion about how we, how we do this, <laughs> if this is okay with you. Like Listen, is, man, it's your podcast. I'm going to do go right where you want to go. <laughs> ah, this is great. Excellent attitude, Brian. So, what I'd love is if you could really try to outline for us yeah. kind of what these stages are. Now, we know that some people have nine stages and some have six and 12. You can cut yeah. this cake a number of ways, but yeah. you've honed down on four. So I'd love it. If you could go, and I'll try not to interrupt you too much, but just let, <laughs> let, let you go with that. And then we'll, sure. we'll talk some more after that. So, sure. well, yeah, I, I, I'd be happy to do that. And, and like you, I've been interested in different theories or models of stages. And, mm. uh, and uh, I came across one theory early on and then became so intrigued, I just started reading everything I could. And, and so this is a way of, in some ways, uh, synthesizing a whole lot of other theorists, um, from different fields, psychology, religion, mm. uh, philosophy, history, and, uh, and trying to, uh, yeah, get a simple contour. So four stages, very easy to remember. I'll just mm. say all four first. Simplicity, complexity, perplexity, and harmony. Mm -hmm. Simplicity, complexity, perplexity, harmony. Um, and simplicity is where we start. When we are children, we don't know what's going on in the world. And it's a little dangerous to find out everything the hard way. <laughs> so we trust the authority figures. And those authority figures tend to give us the world in twos. That's why I call this the stage of dualism. Everything is safe, dangerous, uh, right, wrong, good, evil, us, them, friend, enemy. And, and in many ways, when we're children, that's just what we need. Can mm. I eat this or not? Uh, can I chase my ball out into the street or not? Uh, do I have to do my homework or not? And so this world set up in dualism is just what we need as children. And the, the adults who we trust tell us what the world is like, and we believe them. And I think this is really important in the world of religion, because we realize if you grow up in a Muslim family, um, you believe what your Muslim parents tell you. If you grew up in a Jewish family, a Hindu family, a Sikh family, a Hindu family, or an atheist family, you accept the world as it's told to you by your parents. You may have, yeah. you know, we all argue with our parents, but we accept this uh, by and large. And, and that's simplicity. You might say that simplicity is faith before doubt. Mm. It's building the categories through which uh, we are taught to see the world. And that a lot of people stay in stage one their whole lives. Nothing ever pushes them out of it. Or they're never allowed to go out of it. In other words, mm -hmm. people put so much pressure on them, uh, they aren't even allowed. They're, they're given threats if they question anything they're told in, in that uh, first stage. Um, but more and more of us get pushed out of simplicity into complexity. I think for a lot of people that hits in secondary school. It often coincides with puberty when um, kids are becoming their own, uh, they're coming of age, and they're having to venture out with more independence from their parents and authority figures. It very often hits if people go away to university and they're, they're presented with all kinds of opportunities to think for themselves, and they find out the world isn't as simple as they were taught. So now we're in the world of complexity. 
And I often think of this, uh, if, if simplicity is dualism, I think complexity is pragmatism. Uh, because in a sense, what happens is you grow up in your family where everything's black and white, us and them, uh, simple, easy answers. And you uh, meet someone at, at your university who grew up in a very different family. And you realize I have my simple answers. He has his simple answers. She has her simple answers. And you realize, oh, there's a whole lot of simple answers going on out there. And I have to learn how to negotiate between them. And that's complex. Um, sometimes a lot of our efforts in complexity are spent trying to, if you think of it as a contract, we're, uh, the, the simple answers we were given, uh, we're now adding fine print to the contract yeah. where we're complexifying yeah. it. That's good. So that's, that's complexity. And a lot of people stay there. And, and in religion, mm. a lot of religion specializes in stage one. And I think in my lifetime, a lot more religion has moved into stage two. And you can mm. always tell when you're in a stage two uh, religious setting, because the sermons tend to be pragmatic, how to have a good marriage, how to raise happy yeah. children, that sort of thing. Okay. And a lot of people stay there their lives. Stage three perplexity happens when we reach something in our lives. My dear friend, Richard Rohr says, it's often great pain or great mm. love. Uh, I would add sometimes it's a great education or the right kind of travel. And we find out, we, we reach this point where now those easy answers we were given, we actually think they're not only inaccurate, they're also harmful. So maybe we were taught, you know, to be straight is good, to be gay is evil. Mm -hmm. and, and then we meet gay people who've been deeply hurt by people from our background and we think this doesn't seem right. How do I square this? And, and so now it's not just that we're, we're moving beyond stages one and two, we're going back and scrutinizing stages one and two. Um, that pastor who ta ta taught us the five keys to a happy marriage, we find out, you know, he has an affair and runs away with, yeah. you know, the church, yeah. the choir director or whatever. And now we, we say, those easy answers and easy steps to success didn't even work for, for him. So this is the stage of critical thinking. And a lot of people get there. They, and a word we often use for this is deconstruction. We start mm. taking apart yeah. stages one and two. Um, and a lot of people stay there. And a lot of people, when they reach this stage in terms of their faith, they just feel, I'm done with Christianity for good. Mm. Um, there's nothing it has to offer me because they've only been exposed to stage one and stage two versions of the faith. Um, but more and more people, I think, are reaching stage three at a younger and younger age, and they start thinking, is there something beyond this? Is there a way to put a big picture back together again? And, and that's why some people call what I call stage four harmony the second innocence or the second mm. naivete or, mm. or the simplicity on the other side of complexity. And that's where we start to see bigger patterns and and, and we try to sort through and say, of course, stage one couldn't tell me everything I needed to know, but I couldn't have handled everything I needed to know when I was learning those right. easy answers. And, and so we reach this stage now where we begin to integrate what we've learned in the different stages. And we do it with a sense of charity because we realize nobody's perfect. Everybody's a mess. And in some ways, everybody's doing the best they can. Um, and there's a lot more we could say about it, but that's a good, yeah. a good summary. 
No, Brian, thank you so much for that. And it's, it strikes me that there's a, there's a number of really key things uh, for people who have reached that falling upward moment, as Richard Raw would say, yes. you know, there, there's, there's a despair around it, isn't there? Yes. there yes. And it is no wonder people give up on the whole thing and just, you know, throw their hands up in horror and say, I'm done. I've had it because that is a very painful Yes. moment where nothing seems to make sense you've deconstructed and deconstructed and it's really problematic in handling the bible yes. as, as well it's like well what confidence can i ever have in this book yes. now I, yes. I don't know whether you want to speak to that you know and how the bible sure. kind of fits in and and and, and how a, a different a, a different approach to handling the bible yes. might might work now yes well well first let, let me just recount a, a mm. um an experience I had that really illustrates this. Mm. So I don't even remember this specific question, but I was probably 16 or 17 years old. I was uncomfortable in stage one. I was looking mm. for something beyond it. And I, had, I knew this fellow who was four or five years older than me. And I came to him, he was a committed Christian. I came to him mm. and I had some question about the Bible and I wanted to know which was the right interpretation. Mm. Um, and everything in me as a stage one person believe there was a right answer and the wrong answer. So is this right or is this mm. right? And I remember he said to me, you know, Brian, there are four different ways to look at that. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I remember my head just sort of, you know, it explodes. Yeah. What do you mean there are four ways? And then he gives me four historical views. It's a little bit like what I did in A New Kind of Christian with mm. views of the atonement. Yeah. There's the right view and then yeah. any other view. Yeah. And then you say, no, there are actually through history, there have been four or five different views. Yeah. And then he told me, he explained each view, explained it very fairly. He said, here are the strengths of this one. Here are the weaknesses of this one. He did strengths and weaknesses for each one. He told me, I'm really comfortable with any of these four. Uh, but, uh, you know, here's the one I sort of land on, but I respect people all, all for, I had never been given mm. that kind of freedom before. Yeah. And suddenly now the Bible becomes a book with possibilities. So that brought me into a stage two way of reading the Bible. And now I want to know the history of biblical interpretation, because yeah. I want to find out there've been different ways people read this text, you know? And, um, and so that got me through stage two, but in stage three, this is where life gets very painful for people who are in stage one or stage two churches, mm. because if they start saying, I'm not happy with any of these options. Um, I, I think this passage in the Bible is dangerous. I think this is going to mm. result in women being mistreated or in poor people being mistreated or whatever. And uh, when that starts to happen, we begin to have not only sort of philosophical or intellectual questions, but ethical questions. Mm. Um, now, here's what's really interesting. And I'll, I'll, I just have to recount an experience. I was a pastor. I was, I was preaching in stage two, living mm. in stage three, and trying to figure out how I was going to make this all work. And someone handed me an article by the great Hebrew scripture scholar, Walter Brueggemann. Mm. And it was an article, I still remember it, it was an article uh, about the biblical view of the monarchy. Now, for people who don't know, there was a period in Hebrew history where they had basically tribal chieftains. And then all of those tribal chieftains came together under one king. So when they got the monarchy, um, uh, 
this article was about the different attitudes toward the monarchy. And Walter Brueggemann said something just as obvious as could be, but I'd never seen it before. He said, different writers in the Bible have different opinions of the monarchy. Some say it was the greatest thing that ever happened. Some say it was the worst thing that ever happened. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I just remember reading, and here's what he said. He said, the monarchy is the subject of a great argument among the biblical writers. Yeah. And suddenly to say, of course, there's an argument going on in the Bible. And very often for people in stage three, I mean, this is true. It's so obvious, but mm. people are taught not to see it. When you're given permission to see that there's an argument going on, some say having a king took us out of that terrible period when the judges were in charge and life was mm. chaos. Other people say, yeah, but when we got a king, he started taxing us and he started conscripting mm. us into his wars. And he started, mm. and, and, and then Walter Brueggemann said, there is wisdom on both sides. Aren't we better off for having both sides of this argument? Yeah. And that makes possible, wow. I think, entering into stage four, dealing with the Bible. But again, a whole lot of people, they've never heard a single sermon or read a single biblical scholar who lets them step outside of stages one or two. It's, it's so fascinating, isn't it? And I don't know enough about it, but I gather that the, the rabbinic tradition it, it, it is very much in conversation with scripture. Yes. It's like, okay, here's something written down. Now let's let's really debate it and 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 challenge it and and see what they've got right and what they've got wrong. I and mean, that's that's blasphemy in, in a lot of churches, isn't it? How dare you? God's word is the same today, forever and always. And yes. you know, God said it, so we do it whether we like it or not. And that's it. End of conversation. There's no yes. there's no conversation to be had, even. That's um, right. And you know, here's where you realize. Um, this is what many Christians are taught about the Bible. And there are some Muslims who are taught something similar about the Quran. And mm. there are some Mormons who are taught something similar about the Book of Mormon. And there are Hindus. Some Hindus are taught the same thing, some, a very similar way of reading the Bhagavad Gita or the Rig Veda yeah. or whatever. And, uh, and so then you step back and you realize, oh, I I'm not being a bad person. I'm just growing up. And yeah. I, my Muslim friends and Jewish friends and Sikh friends and, and atheist friends are having to do the same, you know, um, because this is part of, part of growing up. And, and, and I think this is, this is one of the wonderful and inspiring things about these stages. You know, they often end up with this very much more universal abiding like, like yeah. oh, oh, I thought my God was tribal and we were the ones that were right and everyone else is wrong. But it always tends to end up somehow with a more expansive view. Can you can you say something about sure. that and, and, well, and what that looks like for you in harmony? Yes. So so look, I need to say this, I, and I, I mean, you know, some people have no reason to trust what I'm about to say, and I wouldn't blame you. You can go check this out for yourself. But when you actually read the Bible, you find out, for example, on this issue of a tribal god there really are passages and there are writers who see God as the God who loves our people and the lives of anyone else are just in the way. Mm. We, mm. God cares about us and is willing to kill, oppress, torture, destroy anybody who gets in our way. Mm. Um, that is a belief held by some biblical writers. You can mm. see it. Yeah. But there are other biblical writers yes. who have the opposite belief. Oh, there's this wonderful passage in the book of Amos mm. where Amos is speaking for God, right? And, and, and Amos basically says, 
you people say you're chosen people and that I took you up out of Egypt to liberate you. Don't you think I was doing the same for the Philistines and the Arameans and the <laughs> Ethiopians? I mean, how arrogant are you to think that you're the only people who matter? So you, you have this kind of argument in the Bible. Mm. And, but here's the thing. If your teachers are stage one or stage two teachers, they will never teach you that. And they will always explain away the more universal verses in, by the more strict ones. And, but when you come to see that, that one of the gifts of the Bible, this isn't a flaw in the Bible, this is a gift. And here's where I said people would have to trust me on this. Mm. I, if the Bible did not give that kind of freedom, if it was all stage one rules, yeah. I hope I would be honest to say it really doesn't help us, you know. Yes. Um, but I, it honestly is there. I mean, it's even there between Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Different perspectives. They tell things yeah. differently. And those yeah. aren't contradictions there, but they're invitations for us, as you were saying about the rabbis, to become part mm. of the deep conversation. You could say it this way. The Bible is a very bad book at shutting people up and making them be quiet. Yeah. It is a very good book at inviting people into deep conversations about what matters most. And um, yeah. I love this. And do you think, I mean, I, I know you have studied a bit of other faiths and other religions and everything. Do you think those journeys really are comparable? Do you think other religions take actually through their scriptures, take people to a more universal loving outlook towards all peoples? Look, I, I don't want to insult anybody but let mm. me just say some more than others right mm. um, yeah uh, i think there are some religions uh it's not the ancient ones because it's almost like the, mm. the very ancient ones have had time to evolve and they've had mm. it, traditions of interpretation that have had time to evolve but some of the more the newer kind of religions i think it's very mm. hard to have anything mm. but a very rigid unidimensional way of reading the text yeah. but I can tell you, I, I mean, from the bottom of my heart, um, I'm in conversations like this with Muslims all the time. Mm. Um, and, and Muslims are, have the exact same issues. First, because Muslims are taught to revere the Bible, the Hebrew scriptures and the gospels mm. are very important to Muslims. So they have all of that complexity. And then in the Quran itself, um, they, they have texts that were written that come early from Muhammad's life. And uh, texts that come from later in his life and they have arguments did does this one mature over the previous one That's and they're having all these kinds of similar debates my jewish friends as you said there's a long tradition of debate but there are what we might call fundamentalist jews who believe there's only one interpretation of things and mm. um and and there are far more progressive and open jews and i have sick friends in the Sikh religion very similar um, I remember a conversation with a Hindu friend of mine. He told me when he was a little boy, you know, how we have bi illustrated Bible story books for children. Yeah. And he was a little boy and his mother was reading him some of the great stories from the Hindu scriptures uh, about Krishna and Vishnu. And in these illustrations, you know, how in Christian art, mm. we put a halo over holy people. Well, in mm. Hindu art, the gods are typically made to be blue. And, uh, yeah. you know, they use blue ink to, yeah. it's, their, it's like their halo. It's a way of saying this is a God in this illustration. And he said to his mother, mom, do the gods really have blue skin? And she said, of course they do. 
<laughs> and and she and he said, or is that just like a symbol of something? She said they have blue skin and don't ask questions. <laughs> and and so even at a young age, he was sure. wanting to break out of stage one, but his mother wasn't really ready for that. You know. Well, you see it a lot, and and you know, I love this conversation because for me, it's it's and the whole book actually just gave language. It helped me explain my journey far easier to people because suddenly I've got some tools to say, you know what, back then I was here and now I'm here and now I'm here. But this stuff is more than just a kind of, it's more than just a kind of personal journey because I feel like what's contained in this book is something that is not just for the church. It's for the whole world to start understanding. And now can we talk a little bit about what's been going on in your country? Oh my goodness. <laughs> Cause I'd oh rather talk about that than what's been going on in my country. And also I'm probably blind to the issues. You can probably critique Britain better than I can. Um, but you know, well, you've, we, you've had we, an interesting. Got... <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, we, we've got enough big sticks in our own eye to not worry about the sprinkles <laughs> and everybody else's. But I mean, in particular, you know, things sometimes happen and I go, oh, my gosh, I'm so I'm so ashamed to be associated with this. You know, yes. this is how people. So we've just done a census in this country. It was yesterday. We had to fill it all in. And um, I had to think about it had the question, what religion are you? And the first yes. box was Christian. And I really yes. had to stop to think, yes, do I want to tick that box yes. who's who's reading this and what is their interpretation of what a christian is because yes. do they think that i'm a misogynistic homophobic narrow-minded fundamentalist person or do they think when they see that here's someone who's on a journey to become a loving kind caring human being someone who's going to care for the planet and everything i have no idea what they're thinking all there is is a label that says christian and yes. it can mean so much Yes. I did tick it, by the way, but <laughs> yes. with trepidation. <laughs> well, well, I so, tell and you, in, in the States, you've got a, you've got a whole yeah. lot of association going on with the word Christian and evangelical, right? Yeah, yeah. It's, in fact, just literally three hours ago, I got an email from a pastor who said, uh, he just read the book and he said, I hope you're right. He said, but I'm so exhausted by everything that's happening with Christianity in America, I just don't have the energy yeah. to be in the fight any longer. And he, said, uh, he said, it's like he's in a plane and the plane's about to crash and he's just gonna jump out and pull the ripcord on his parachute. And you know, you can't blame people for feeling that. Um, so yeah, and, and to talk about it in terms of the four stages, you could say it like this, one of the added complexities about stage one is that there are people, the name for them is demagogues. Another name for them is authoritarian leaders who make a lot of money and gain a lot of power by scaring people back into stage one. Oh, because I think people can grow. They can grow from stage one to stage two to stage three. But people can also regress, especially if they're put under great stress or in great fear. And, and um, there's a whole body of literature on authoritarianism and something called authoritarian leaders and authoritarian followers. Mm -hmm. And part of what's going on, I think, in America, but it's not just here. You have your strain of it there. Mm -hmm. And there, it's certainly we see explosions of it in Brazil and Mexico and the Philippines. And uh, across Europe, there's, there's this resurgence of white Christian supremacy yes. that's happening. It's super ugly. And there are 
other mm. versions of it in Africa and in Myanmar and mm. uh, all over, right? And there's a kind of Hindu version of this too. And, and this is like a weakness that we have to face in human beings that authoritarians or demagogues learn how to scare people into stage one where they have exquisite control over them. Mm. Um, yeah. And they become the authority figure, the strong man, and, and they capitalize on that. Uh, and that and that's certainly what's going on here in the United States. We we have had, you know, we of course have our unique history of white supremacy and racism that goes back, you know, to our founding, with when we were an English colony stealing the lands yeah. of native peoples, and then when we needed, we a lot of people don't know that those thirteen colonies had made slaves of the native peoples, mm. um, and then when they were running out of slaves of Native Americans they started importing slaves uh, from, from Africa. So, you know, this history of slavery is deeply, deeply rooted. And there are theological roots to it in our religion that more people need to know about. Um, all the more reason for us to need to doubt things about our past, because if we yeah. carry these things along, horrible things are perpetuated. But um, I think that's, we have these unsolved problems, these unresolved issues, and they just remain open for demagogues to come. And Donald Trump mm. was certainly that, uh, mm. certainly an authoritarian demagogue who had no concern for the truth, only had a concern for power. Mm. Yeah, sure. And I can name one or two church leaders I've known who've been similar in their, in their style and churchmanship, actually. Um, well, you know, yeah. th there's, there's often a saying that politics has ruined religion, but I think it's the opposite, more the opposite. I think pollutions in religion have infiltrated their way into our politics because I think yeah. the, there's a narcissism that is rewarded in religious settings, especially, I hate to say it, but evangelical and charismatic settings just promote certain kinds of narcissistic personalities. In fact, I think people who aren't narcissistic, you know, inherently mm. become narcissistic <laughs> in church culture. And, um, and I think that kind of narcissistic relationship with a strongman pastor set a lot of people mm. up to when, when those strongman pastors pledge their mm. fealty to mm. Trump, then it all just fell into place. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. So this is, this is dark and this conversation, we, we know <laughs> when we start talking about this kind of stuff, there's an energy and there's that kind of, you, you know, I can feel it. This kind of, yeah. Oh gosh, what are we going to do? Where, where do you see hope for the American church at the yeah. moment? Where, where, where well, do you see signs of hope? Uh, I, for, I mean, first of all, uh, this isn't nearly what I wish it were, but if we were to just take white evangelicals, somewhere around 5% of them who voted for Trump in 2016 voted against him in 2020. Now, 5% might not seem like much, mm. but to politicians, it's a pretty big deal. And in some mm. of the swing states, it went uh, above mm. 5%. Um, but here's what I would say. Um, I would say that when people ask me what I think is going to happen, I think it will be a Charles Dickens kind of situation where it will be the best of times and the worst of times. I think mm. we're seeing as people as people feel that an ugly shadow of Christianity has been brought out into the light, mm. many people are going to become more courageous to confront it and start proposing an alternative to it than ever before. 
Um, so we're going to see beautiful and heroic things happening. Look, let me be honest. The number of podcasts that are having these conversations yeah. is absolutely breathtaking. It's beautiful. Mm. And people like you are creating these mm. spaces where people are allowed to listen in on conversations when they're driving in their car. And I mm. bet some of them are blushing because they think if the people in my church knew I was listening to this conversation, <laughs> yeah. you know, it, who knows what would happen. But, yeah. but that's happening. And at the same time, I think we have to expect that the ugly and dark side of Christianity that has been activated in authoritarianism is only going to become more extreme. But I think you can see the more extreme and ugly that becomes, yeah. the greater the opportunity for a younger generation to grow up and say, I don't want, this isn't what I want to be part of. And this doesn't look much like Jesus. And yeah, so yeah. I, think, I think we're in these moments of decision in these coming years. So there we go. That was the first part oh, yeah. of Joe talking to Brian McLaren. There's lots more goodies to come in part two. Yeah. Uh, which we'll, we'll run next week. I mm. thought, uh, Joe, seriously, I thought it was brilliant. Really interesting stuff. Really thought-provoking. Yes, well, thank you. I'll take all of that. But let me say, he is a very gracious and lovely man. And I'm sure some people are more easy to interview than others. And, and he was an absolute joy. To, um, to talk with. But he has yeah. nicked all your material, quite clearly. Oh, well, I mean, it, it, it hurts a little bit. Yeah. We've been talking about this stuff, but, I've you know. Been, I've been banging this drum for years, and then, you know, oh, Mr. Big Mac Hotshot comes along, <laughs> <laughs> making well, literally pounds. <laughs> well, actually, I mean, it is the thing we started the podcast about, isn't it? Yes, it, it is. Stages of faith, yeah. Episode one of this podcast talks about that. Exactly. Uh, right. But but I, what I really loved was his. Uh, well, I loved lots of things about it, but I, I you know, you, you can tell this is a really good teacher, mm. writer, communicator when he's put them in those four words. Yeah. Uh, simplicity, complexity, perplexity, and harmony. Yeah. He kind of paints the picture straight away. I, I really um, found that helpful. Yeah, yeah, me too. Um, and I liked what he was saying about stage two um, sermons, a very pragmatic how-to. And then you realise, you know, how to have a great marriage, how to have a successful mm. life, how mm. to do this and how to do that. And then you you gradually start to realise these easy answers don't actually work. And even the people preaching them aren't practising them. <laughs> yes. He talked about that a really good image, which I, I mm. know from talking to people and from less, um, emails from listeners, the, the difficulty of preaching in stage two and living in stage three. I mean, that just sums up such a difficulty for so many uh, pastors. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, it really is. And of course, a lot of people in stage three do say, I've, I'm done with Christianity. Yeah. I've had it. Mm. I've had it. And they're walking away. And those, the you know, we all know people who've walked away from church in that stage three because the perplexity gets get so severe and there's no sort of concept that there's a there's a stage to move on to beyond that that's good and balanced mm. and you know fantastic also what interested me was he was saying that people are reaching the perplexity stage stage three at a younger yeah age in his opinion yes and I think that's absolutely true. Yeah. Because I think our young people within churches get absolutely deluged with the new atheist kind of stuff. Yes, exactly right. Yeah. And and so they they come very early to that 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 stage. And what in, what I found earlier last year when I was I was 
talking to young people about this and thinking mm. about it was there's no there's nothing for them there's no apologetics or anything written from the point of view of taking people on from perplexity into harmony yeah yeah exactly it's all written trying to drag them back yes exactly into into the stage one kind of thing if, or if know. only we knew a talented writer who could write into that specific space nick well you'll have to ask <laughs> brian won't you but you know <laughs> No, I mean, seriously, I was thinking about yeah. it because th th yeah, exactly there isn't right. anything that, that does apologetics from the point of view of going, well, actually, it is quite complicated. Yes. And there are lots of different answers. Yeah. And or at least nothing I know of. So if listeners do know of stuff like that. Yes, yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. That, uh, particularly that would, would work, uh, would resonate with, with younger people. It would be great. So mm. that idea that sort of arguments and disagreements are, are you know, to be avoided, to be fled from. Mm. you know it, it mm. is really sort of stage one thinking I, I did like what you said about the bible arguments yes. in the bible as well yeah yeah it was interesting the stuff on the monarchy wasn't it and different yeah. writers having yeah. different opinions absolutely so. um jonathan Sachs, the chief rabbi i read this quote from him the other day uh late jonathan Sachs. he said yeah. um, judaism is a tradition all of whose canonical texts are anthologies of arguments that's interesting it's true and not only is it arguments with god it's arguments within each other, you know. Mm. It's arguments yeah. with other writers. They're all having a go at each other in the yeah. Old Testament. It's amazing. It is fantastic, isn't it? And just and just this idea: there are those who support law and see that law is is the only way to do it, and those that support grace mm. as well. I mean, I, you definitely see that tension being played out. And even I think even within Paul's writings, he's acknowledging that that's such Absolutely. a critical yeah. critically different way of viewing the world the yeah. other thing that i think came over very strongly in the interview is the is the idea of well that what you just used sort of grace graciousness charity mm. we've talked about this a lot in the yeah. past because what i've always found difficult about the stages is understanding that they happen and moving on through yeah. them but without looking down on people who are exactly. in a different place or like it's a new Gnosticism that you've got you've got the knowledge now and you're right and they're wrong. And there's there's some something about stage four is defined by humility and compassion. Yes, yes. Uh, it can't be faked. If all you've got is the new set of right answers, you're missing the point a little bit, I think. You somehow are embracing the multitude of answers. And what I took from that, what I found helpful was looking back at, if you like, my younger self. Mm. And having charity towards that idiot, mm. um, because <laughs> need to work on it a bit more. <laughs> <laughs> you know, because you look back on young stuff, and particularly if you're a writer, because your yeah. views are fixed uh, yes, exactly. in print somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and and you express things or write about things that you would never say the same things now. And I suppose I have to look back on that with a bit of charity and go, well, at the time I thought I was doing mm. my duty, I was doing yeah. my job. Yeah. Uh, what I believed in, um, and now I would do things differently. Mm. It, I, I found that very helpful. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think you ever wrote in a very hardcore, angry, conservative, evangelical way. Though. I don't remember those books. Well, there were a couple of sketches and things like that oh, from right, very okay. early on in oh, my yeah, career, sure. where, which expressed yeah. certain views. I think, but um, yeah, sure. I mean, I always sort of think if I ever got 
remotely famous somebody would drag them up and then i'd be you know doomed mm. for all time because that's what we do now you can never <laughs> yeah exactly yeah apparently you can never change your mind now or never uh, never <laughs> grow up you're always fixed at the point of your greatest shame uh, yeah, apparently nowadays that's right. <laughs> yeah. isn't that horrible isn't that awful you know it's, right? oh, it's just dreadful but well, anyway that's a yeah. whole other podcast going on there well listen uh, we could go on talking about this for hours on end and in fact we will but we we'd really <laughs> love, we'd love to engage uh, you at home in these in these conversations so please do write in to joe at midfaithcrisis.org and let us know your comments does this resonate with you do you think this is total heresy is this something helpful for you um we'd love to hear from you um, and we've probably gone on long enough so we better stop the conversation there though i had so much more i wanted to talk about We'll do it next week. Well, yes. I mean, we'll be talking about this for a while. Next week's uh, second part is a humdinger as well. We'll talk about leadership and mm. uh, all kinds of other things and that. Mm. So uh, do do join us for that. Don't forget about the Mid-Faith Crisis Church Weekend Away. Details will be on the website. We need you all to come because, frankly, we're going to be quite skint if you don't. <laughs> yes. And, uh, you know, we, we're looking for, what, about 32, 35 people. That's double the podcast listenership. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's a faith target. Yeah. <laughs> faith <is>. target. <laughs> anyway, thank you for joining us this week. And thank you. we'll be with you next week. See you then. Cheers. Bye.